This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Our Q&A conversation in this program is with Richard Horton, editor of the British medical journal The Lancet. His book is The COVID-19 Catastrophe. We talk about what went wrong, where we are now, and what might lie ahead with the global pandemic. Richard Horton, editor of the medical journal The Lancet, you published a book this summer called The COVID-19 Catastrophe. And in it, you wrote, the virus that caused COVID-19 isn't going away. It will be with us for a very long time to come. The best we can hope for is peaceful coexistence. What does peaceful coexistence look like? Well, it means negotiating a relationship with the virus, if I can put it like that. When COVID-19 hit, countries, most countries locked down. Um, the only way to cut lines of viral transmission was to stay at home, uh, stop social mixing, implement physical distancing and so on. And that's fine in the short term. That can extinguish the outbreak. But it's not a long-term solution as we are seeing with our schools, our economies, it's just not possible to live life like that. So by peaceful coexistence, what I mean is we have to renegotiate our relationship with the virus, which means that we do have to leave our homes. We do have to go to work. We do have to send our children to school, but we have to do it in a way that minimizes the risks to those who are most at risk of COVID-19. So that is that does mean that we have to live side by side with this virus as of course, we live side by side with many other pathogens such as influenza. Bring me up to date, if you would, on the status in the UK specifically and in Western Europe. Well, the, the status in the UK is that having had a, one of the worst um, in terms of mortality, one of the worst outcomes of the pandemic of any European country, I think Belgium is only worse than the United Kingdom, um, we are now in a good phase where the numbers of deaths have been redu reduced dramatically. There is still community transmission, but we're now seeing the evolution of the pandemic affecting a different demographic, a different part of our population. So in the early phase of the pandemic, the uh, very sadly, tragically even, um, the virus was hitting particularly older people, um, people from black and Asian minority communities, and people who were living in nursing care homes. And they bore the brunt of the pandemic and they had particularly high mortalities. What we're now seeing is that the infection is more in younger people. And of course, in younger people, the risks of severe disease and death are far less. So 
the nature of the, the epidemic has shifted. We're seeing something similar in many other European countries. Unfortunately, though, there are several European countries, in particular uh, Spain and France, where we are seeing the outbreak shoot up again. It's coming back. It's not really a second wave. That would be the wrong way to describe it. But it's surging. So having suppressed the outbreak, it's now coming back because people are mixing again and going back to work and so on and so forth. So it's a slightly mixed picture. Um, some countries are doing well, some countries are doing less well. And of course, the problem, the challenge for governments is managing quarantine um, because every week it seems that one country is uh, out of risk and another country is in risk. So it's a very fluid situation. Is it too early in the midst of all this to look at the various ways those countries approach the virus initially and take learnings from it? No, I don't think it's too early um, in, in, in most instances. There are, still, there are still aspects of this pandemic that we don't understand. So I don't think we can be 100% definitive, but I think we can, we can say certain things now. We understand the modes of transmission of this virus much better. Um, at the very beginning of the pandemic, we didn't appreciate as much as we do now that people who are asymptomatic can, may often have the infection. And of course, that poses a particular challenge because if you are not having symptoms, um, then you could be in particular danger of passing on the virus if you're circulating widely in the community. We didn't appreciate um, that the droplet spread of the virus could be in very, very, very tiny droplets. Um, normally, if a droplet is coming out of the nose or the mouth, gravity will take it downwards. Um, and so out of the range of people walking past you in the street or in a store. Um, but we now know that there are these micro droplets which can just hang in the air. And that's the, one of the reasons why we're now much more certain than we were that mask wearing is important because these droplets hang in the air and that poses a risk to us. So wearing a mask can be a way of preventing getting those droplets ingested. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I would I, I would say that um, I would say that. So there's three aspects of this where science has really been focusing, and that is a widely available and inexpensive and quick testing process, uh, the remediation therapies, and also vaccine development. Let me start with the the testing process. Uh, so many people working on this around the world. From uh, what you're able to see through the lens of the Lancet, is there progress being made on quick and inexpensive testing? Yes, very rapid progress. Um, Again, in the early part of the pandemic, uh, you would have you would take a, uh, a a sample, a swab, and you would have to send it to a laboratory where there would be quite an involved scientific testing process, which would which would really take several days to come back. That was that's just simply not fast enough in order to do the test, trace, and isolate um, approach successfully. So we're now getting. Uh, testing which can these are going through trials currently we don't actually have any available but i think we will soon where you can almost get instant results i mean literally you do this the swab and then you can take it to a machine and you can get the result 
uh, almost almost instantaneously. Now that's going to be really really important because if if the test trace and isolate system is going to work, it needs to have a very very rapid turnaround, certainly within 24 hours, in order to get those contacts. Um, so that's real progress. Um, I think that by the end of the year we will have these very rapid tests more widely available because those tests will allow us to do mass testing of the population and that's what we're really going to need as we go into winter months in the northern hemisphere when we're going to have two problems we're going to have uh, this SARS virus, but we're also going to have to contend with influenza. Well, let's talk about vaccines, because as you and I are recording this, the Lancet is being cited across the globe. If one does a, a Google search, for example, you'll see uh, internationally uh, the study that you've published uh, just today on Russian vaccine progress. Can you tell me about that? Yes. I mean, this Russian vaccine um, has found itself caught in a something of a geopolitical struggle, unfortunately. But if we strip that away and just look at the science, I would say the results of the study we published today are encouraging, but the study is small and it would be premature to draw any definitive conclusions. Essentially what the Russian scientists did was to study their two component vaccine that's based upon what's called an adenovirus, a virus that causes the common cold, and they gave it to 76 volunteers. So it's a very, very small study. If I just compare with the Oxford vaccine study that we published some weeks ago, that was over a thousand volunteers. So this is a really small study. Um, and what they found in those 76 volunteers was that the vaccine produced a strong immune response, which you want to see, uh, the right kind of immune response. And as far as we can tell, it was safe with no severe adverse reactions. And now what we need to do, and indeed the Russian scientists are doing this, we need to go on and, and do very large scale, what we call randomized trials, where we can test that vaccine to really see if it actually works in preventing infection and preventing disease. And those trials have begun in Moscow. The worldwide pickup of your report suggests how much people are hanging on the hope of a successful vaccine. In your writing, you've struck a cautionary note about reliance on vaccines. Would you talk more about that? Yes. I mean, a vaccine is a really important tool um, to help us control the pandemic and to protect us. But I, it's important to stress that it's not going to be a magic bullet. Uh, vaccines have certainly, no question, vaccines have transformed life for our species around the planet. No question about that. Um, but no vaccine is 100% effective or 100% safe or will be used by 100% of people on the planet. And that means that it will, be, it will have an important part to play, but we are going to have to continue to negotiate this relationship with the virus we're still even with a vaccine we are still going to have to be careful about social mixing physical distancing about mask wearing most likely um, and possibly also about these larger mass gatherings as we call them um, which so sadly we've not been able to uh, partake in so 
I do want to be I want to be optimistic about a vaccine. I do believe we will have a vaccine, but I want to be cautious about saying that it's going to be our savior because I don't believe it will be. Well, it sounds like from that description that the world isn't going to be back to normal. And I have air quotes around that for quite a long time. No, I, I think I think this is one of those step changes in human history. And to be fair, we've known that something like this has been coming for about 30 years or so. Um, these types of infections where a virus jumps from an animal to a human being, um, they have been documented and increasing in frequency for the last 30 years. And so it really has been a question of when, not if. Um, now, what that means is that we are going to have to um, figure out a way um, to get past this acute phase. Now, we will. It's going to take some years, though. There are two ways to um, help reduce the risk. One is a vaccine, but as I said, I've said that that's only part of the solution. The other is, of course, this idea that came up early on in the pandemic, which was absolutely not the way to manage it, but in the long term um, is very important, and that is what's called herd immunity. The more people who build up immunity to the virus, um, that will then reduce the possibility of there being these epidemic or pandemic outbreaks. But that's not going to happen this year or next year or the year after. It's going to take several years for that to um, for that to take place. So we have to be in this for the long haul. I want to go back to your comments about uh, the geopolitics of the Russian vaccine um, from uh, where you sit with so much information coming in from all over the globe. How concerned are you about the uh, weaponization of a successful vaccine? Well, I'm, I'm really anxious about this because this is a global emergency and a global emergency requires a global solution. And that means that countries and presidents and prime ministers have to find ways to work together. And honestly, where I'm sitting now, it feels as if the science is being so politicized. You know, we published the first papers on the pandemic at the end of January this year from China. And we see the president of the United States now routinely calling this a China virus. It's no more a China virus than any other virus is. It's that you could, that's like saying, well, in America, you call it an American virus or in my country, a British virus. It's a, it's a nonsensical statement. Um, but by saying it's a China virus, or as today in the press conference that launched the Russia vaccine study that took place in Moscow, where those who were presenting literally presented it as a as a um, a force against the West, and they were criticizing the Western response and the Western vaccine, saying that the Russian vaccine was better than the Western vaccine. This is not the way to solve a global emergency. We seem to be pitting country against country, scientist against scientist, vaccine against vaccine. Uh, and this is going to hamper any attempt that we have to control the pandemic. We, we need leadership where our, politi our politicians work together, not against one another. 
And so I'm very troubled by this. Let me go to the third leg of that stool, and that is the uh, uh, treatments, the clinical treatments of people who have caught the, the virus. There was a lot of publicity here in the United States this week about steroid use and the success of readily available steroids in treating the very ill people, uh, patients in this disease. Uh, and then also we hear about remdesivir and its, its continuing success. So on that front, on treatment, what are you seeing? Well, isn't it incredible? You know, we didn't even know this virus existed and, and at the very beginning of this year. And yet, and I, and I really do think we have to pay so, have so much gratitude for the scientists around the world who have found ways to work together um, to test these treatments out in large numbers of people. And I think we have learned an incredible amount. And indeed, one of the reasons why the mortality rates have gone down over the last few months in countries that have been hit very hard, not the only reason, but one reason, is that we now know much better about how to manage patients with this disease. I mean, it's really important to say this is a very nasty disease. Uh, patients who present with COVID-19, severe COVID-19, they have multiple organ failures of the heart, of the liver, of the lungs, of the kidneys. And they genuinely are in intensive care because they need intensive care. And when you're faced with a patient like that, just keeping them alive is the goal. And now we have treatments that not just keep them alive, but can really slow and turn back the pace and aggression of the disease. So the issue of steroids, um, whether it's dexamethasone or hydrocortisone, has really, really been a, a huge, huge breakthrough, a third reduction in mortality of patients with severe disease who are on intensive care units. That's a major step forward. And we know that, in fact, uh, there are trials that are ongoing that I believe will deliver further benefits um, in the coming months. So watch this space. You have, as you mentioned, been at this field for 30 years. And you think back to the the earlier pandemics, Ebola, SARS, that have come uh, uh, into being and uh, your own publication's response to it. You know, you say it's been nine months. It feels to, like to all of us, like it's been a yeah. lifetime, I think. But can you comment about the speed with which the scientific community is responding to this compared to even recent past? Yes. You know, it's... it's it's interesting because there's been a lot of so much criticism of China and the World Health Organization. Um, and I understand why, because this virus has turned all of our lives and our children's lives upside down. Um, and it's understandable that we're angry about it. Um, but in fact, if you actually look at the timeline, this has been the fastest that international organizations um, and countries like China have ever responded. If I just take you back to the early 2000s, when the very, very first um, SARS outbreak took place, a different virus, but related, it was a coronavirus. And that outbreak of SARS in 2002 took place also in China. The Chinese response then was to deny the outbreak, to cover it up, 
and hope that it would go away. And it took months for the World Health Organization to force China to come clean about what was going on. What happened this time? The very first patient that we are aware of who was admitted to hospital was on the 1st of December 2019. And by December the 31st, just one month later, the Chinese government informed the World Health Organization that there was an outbreak of an unknown virus and this severe disease. And just one month after that, by the end of January, the World Health Organization had sounded the most important alarm signal that it can sound by declaring a public health emergency of international concern. It took eight months when there was the recent Ebola outbreak for WHO to call a public health emergency of international concern. And Ebola is a much nastier virus than this coronavirus, but it took them eight months. On this occasion, it took them one month. So both China and WHO outperformed themselves from any previous pandemic. So although I think we, we do have questions to ask of the Chinese government, we do have reasons to be concerned about some of WHO's response and certainly many other government, government responses, such as my government, and sad to say the American government, I think we also need to recognize that parts of the response were really very quick. I want to dig into a little bit of that um, in, in a bit. But before we do that, I'd like to spend a few minutes on the Lancet itself, because uh, lots of lay people listening to our conversation right now. Can you tell me what the Lancet is and what its mission is? Well, the Lancet was founded by a 27-year-old young surgeon called, called Thomas Wackley in 1823. And he founded it to do two things. Um, and he called it a lancet for two reasons. Um, a lancet was a surgical implement, um, and it was there to cut out the diseased um, part of the body um, that was causing illness. And his idea was that the journal should cut out the corruption um, that he saw in medicine in the 19th century. So it had a political objective. And it was also going to be a scientific journal, and that's another meaning of the word Lancet. Uh, Lancet is an arch that lets light into a building. And so these twin ideas that the journal was going to throw light on knowledge in medicine at the same time as fighting corruption and reforming medicine, these are the two ideas that founded the journal, and what we try and do is simply reinvent those ideas for a new generation. We try to publish the best science that we can find, um, and at the same time, um, act as advocates for health as an important issue in our societies, in our communities. How are you funded? We're a magazine. Effectively, we're, we're just like uh, um, the New York Times or The Economist. Uh, and so we rely on subscriptions. We rely on advertising. Um, we rely on pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies that buy reprints from the Journal of Studies that we've published. So we have a, a kind of mixed 
uh, model of how we're funded, but we're very, very similar to any other magazine or newspaper. What do you know about your readers and how they use the material that you publish? So we publish for physicians, um, but we know that our readership goes beyond the physician community. Um, I started reading The Lancet when I was a medical student, and I, I hope that we still have that idea that we're reaching out to doctors and providing them every week with information that can help shape their practice and thinking, keep, keeping them up to date. But we also know, and we've actually deliberately tried to do this as well in recent years, reached out to a broader audience of people who work in public policy um, because health is such a critical force in our culture, in our society. Um, it's a very politicized subject. Look at the debates you've had in the States about the Affordable Care Act. And we want to be advocates for the very best science that can help inform policymakers and politicians about what they do. Now, no politician or policymaker is going to read a 20-page research paper in The Lancet. But what we can do through our editorials or through podcasts or videos um, or columns that we write is we can translate the, what that research is telling us into um, ideas and prose that will be understandable by the lay person. So that's what we hope for. We hope to be a scientific journal but also we want to have that other role of the Lancet, um, trying to reform society to make society a fairer, um, healthier and kinder place. You referenced that the Lancet published the very first um, study of the coronavirus from the Chinese all the way back. Was it January that you published? January the 24th. So can you um, give us a sense of when this study hit your editorial group, the conversations that were happening, <clears throat> excuse me, happening about publication? Well, we've been working in China for about the past 10 or 11 years. And in early January, we became aware that there was this outbreak of an unknown virus in Wuhan. So we immediately contacted um, our colleagues uh, in the Chinese Ministry of Health called the National Health Commission in the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences um, and in the China Centers for Disease Control um, and Prevention. And we asked them what is going on and essentially can we help? Um, and by can we help, what we meant was um, can we help by publishing any work that you have to show the international community? Now, this is where I think the, the, some of the criticism of China has been very unfair because uh, the Chinese have been uh, accused of covering up the outbreak. Well, far from it, because when we first made contact, we, we have editors who work in Beijing. Um, when we first made contact with the Chinese government and offered a hand to help to tell the international community about what was going on in China, they immediately said yes, and very quickly um, gathered the data that they'd been assembling in December and early January and wrote up um, four or five research papers, which we were able to then publish at the end of January. And these were, I mean, it's, it's, it's strange to go back and think these things we didn't know, but this was the, these were the very first case descriptions of how severe the um, infection was, tipping patients into hospital, into intensive care, with a very high mortality, um, uh, we've, we 
published papers showing human-to-human -human transmission. We didn't know for sure in January that there was human-to-human -human transmission. Um, publishing papers showing what the genomic characterization was, that this was indeed a SARS virus. Uh, and publishing work that showed that this, and the very phrase was used in January, that we were at risk of a global pandemic. Um, so all of this information came from the Chinese themselves. Everything that's happened in the last six months was described in those five papers, and they all came from China. So to accuse China of covering up and not telling the world, I think is extraordinarily unfair. We in the States just saw a report by combined intelligence agencies coming to the conclusion that local authorities in Wuhan hid the uh, extent of the virus from the national government. Uh, is there, can you corroborate you from your knowledge whether or not that report rings true? Well, I think it's, it, it's a complex um, picture to try and understand. Um, and let me just try and explain how it might have played out. So I can see how it can be seen like that, but I think one has to take, put oneself in the position of the authorities at the time. You start to have patients presenting with an unknown disease in early December in hospitals in Wuhan. And the doctors and, and others don't really know what's going on. Um, patients are dying. And this is perhaps taking place over the first one to two weeks in December. At that moment, you start to notify public health officials in Wuhan that something strange is happening and that you think that it's a, it's a new viral infection. Um, but you, just, you don't know for sure. Now, at that point, do you sound the alarm in Beijing and say that you're extremely worried? Or do you try and investigate further? Now, um, of course, there were doctors, and one in particular who very sadly died, who did sound the alert um, and was heavily cautioned by the Wuhan police for doing so. So we do know that there was an attempt to suppress um, the dissemination of the fact of this outbreak by the Wuhan police. But I think amongst health professionals, there was a genuine uncertainty about what was taking place. Now, I know that the Beijing uh, health authorities were informed early and that they did go to Wuhan to investigate what was taking place in December because they were clearly anxious. But people really didn't know what was going on in December. Uh, so I, I think that there were parts of the system in China that were trying to suppress information. And I think there were parts of the system that were trying to uh, understand what was taking place and were passing information on to Beijing and then eventually to the rest of the world. So I don't think it's a simple story. Uh, I think it's a much more complex picture. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It seems critically important to, uh, for the prevention of future pandemics to understand the origins. There's the two prevailing theories, the wet market theory versus the Wuhan laboratory. I know a team of international researchers went to China in mid-July to help understand this. How forthcoming, do you know, has the Chinese government been in letting people, scientists, get to the root cause of this virus? Unfortunately, not forthcoming enough. Uh, uh, my understanding is that uh, no independent scientist has been able to uh, investigate the origin of the outbreak, um, either in the, that laboratory in Wuhan or in the live animal market. Um, of course, we do know that there is, and this is what WHO has established, an independent panel led by Helen Clark and Ellen Johnson Sirleaf um, to learn the lessons and investigate what did happen in China. And I hope that they will have uh, the ability to carry out that independent inquiry. But so far, that hasn't happened. But I must, I must say that certainly talking with people who worked in China and studied coronaviruses very, very carefully. Um, the, uh, the theory, the hypothesis that the virus came from a laboratory in Wuhan and was somehow bioengineered um, in a way that made it harmful, I'm told by those people who know the area and understand these issues far better than I do um, that uh, that that theory does not seem credible at all. The most likely explanation is that it did come, maybe not from a single place within a live animal market, but this is what we call a zoonosis. This is where a virus jumps from an animal to a human being. Maybe it happened on more than one occasion, one occasion and in more than one place, but that still remains the most credible explanation for the origins of this outbreak. Uh, returning to uh, the discussion about your organization's role in all of this, if you go to your website right now, it says, it warns scientists, you're receiving unprecedented numbers of submissions right now on this. The focus globally, of course, has been on aspects of the coronavirus. So in your role and your editorial team's role, how are you deciding what you should publish with this amount of information coming across your desks? Yes, I mean, what's happened at the Lancet is actually what's happened in every health system that's been affected by the outbreak. Um, and, and that is that we essentially stopped, we're not 100% stopped, but we, we stopped giving as much attention to research about non-COVID-19 related areas. So heart disease, cancer, other infectious diseases we, pay, we paid less attention to because we were faced with this avalanche of research being submitted on COVID-19. And it is, a glo it is, it was and it remains and will for some time be a global emergency. So it was right that we dropped everything to focus on COVID-19. But there's a cost that comes from that because what this, what this pandemic is, is an acute emergency, yes, but it's an acute on chronic emergency. It's an acute crisis that comes at the same time as many other conditions are affecting people in society. And so it would be a 
tragedy and a, a terrible mistake if we stopped paying attention to all these other causes of, of ill health in society. And I think it's only now, to be really truthful, as we come out of the summer um, and look ahead, that we're trying to get some balance back. The, the number of papers, if, if we look at the curves of submissions to the Lancet uh, of papers on COVID-19, that they, they, they are, have an uncanny resemblance to the curves of infection. So they, they went up very, very rapidly and they're coming down more slowly. Um, so we're returning to a little bit more of normality, but it, it really was a, a rush of science. And some of that science was excellent. Unfortunately, some of it was less excellent. Um, and, uh, and some of it was frank disinformation and misinformation. And that's a big, big challenge. The WHO has coined this word infodemic, um, this epidemic of information um, of very, very mixed quality. And we all have to watch carefully for that. Why? Uh, what's the motivation of bad actors in spreading misinformation about the pandemic? Well, it's, this is, I don't think there's a single reason why people do. I mean, if I take the anti-vaccination movement as an example, um, the anti-vaccination movement is a pernicious um, grouping of ex those with an extreme position on the safety and efficacy of vaccines. It's actually quite a small group, but they exert enormous influence. You can think of vaccination, anti-vaccination movements as actually a very small nucleus of extremists on the one on one side. But then also you have a fairly small in total numbers group of scientists who are very knowledgeable about vaccines and are ardently pro-vaccine. And then there's the majority of the population who are not doctors or health professionals who sit in the middle, who don't know and are listening to both sides. And the, this is where the anti-vaccination movement can make inroads and have such harmful effects. And now with social media, um, it's very easy to put out a virus of misinformation about a vaccine and to make incredible baseless allegations about vaccines or about individuals related to vaccines um, and make claims that sow seeds of doubt in the minds of ordinary people who are trying to weigh up what to do for themselves or for their families. So we have an environment, unfortunately, that actually um, allows these false ideas and theories to germinate and take seed in our society and to cause enormous damage. And it's very difficult indeed to figure out how to shut that down. What kinds of checks and balances do your editorial team uh, have uh, to really uh, make sure that you don't add to that by publishing studies that later turn out not to be as valid? I'm thinking, of course, there was uh, press around the hydroxychloroquine, hydroxychloroquine study. Hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, I, I mean, I think we, we, we've been on the receiving end of that, along with our, our friends and colleagues at the New England Journal of Medicine. We both had. Um, papers that we had to retract. So this is, uh, I mean, very briefly, we, when a paper is submitted to us and we decide we want to send it for external 
review by independent scientists around the world. We will send it to four or five scientists, ask for their opinions on that paper, and then we negotiate with the authors if we're, if we're still interested um, to revise the paper and sometimes send it back a second time to the reviewers. That's what we did with the Russia vaccine paper we were talking about earlier. And it's a process that's been tried and tested since the very first scientific journal in the 17th century. Um, it's an imperfect process, clearly, because it's not tested, it's not repeating the experiment. Um, it's not actually going out there and saying, okay, let's see if we can reproduce this work, um, because that's the real test. If we can reproduce it, then we know that it's 100% true. Um, clearly, that's not what peer review is doing. What peer review is, is doing is taking on trust what the scientist is presenting and then scrutinizing that work, critiquing it, and asking for more explanation, more clarification, um, more experiments, perhaps more analysis, um, and that then is what we will publish. Um, the flaw in the system, and it is a flaw, but it's a flaw that's very, very difficult to eradicate. The flaw in the system is the entire process of science depends upon trust. I have to trust you that you are telling me the truth. And if you are somebody who's not telling me the truth, in fact, if you are lying to me, if you have falsified or fabricated your data, peer review is not a very effective means of picking up fa fabrication or falsification. And that's what happened in this particular case that we're talking about on hydroxychloroquine. We took on trust that a paper that had been submitted to us contained accurate and reliable data, and it turned out that that was not the case because we did not go back to the particular database and literally check for ourselves, independently validate every single piece of raw data that went into the study. And no scientific journal does that routinely. So the system is open to exploitation should somebody wish to do so. We have a little more than 15 minutes left in our, our conversation. Uh, and in the midst of all this enormous volume of work that you and your team have been doing, you found time to publish a book that I referenced earlier, The COVID-19 Catastrophe. What does a book on this subject matter provide that the Lancet Journal itself or your frequent public appearances uh, and scientific uh, panels and the like does not? Why did you do the book? Well, as we were saying earlier, we published The Lancet mainly for a scientific and medical audience. Um, and I, you know, I think we've, we've touched on the reason why I wrote the book. And the reason why I wrote the book is that I became very um, angry, I say in the book, um, because I didn't feel that the science that we were publishing was being paid attention to by, either, by both the politicians and policymakers that we have guiding the response in our respective countries, or even the scientists advising those governments themselves. And as I, as I saw 
this flood of papers coming into us and the papers that we were publishing and seeing how knowledge was building up and then looking at press conferences of presidents and prime ministers saying certain things and scientists, scientific advisors saying certain things, there was no match between what we were publishing and what was being said. And I wanted to write this book because I wanted to try and understand why there was a mismatch between the reality of the science and the practice of governments in managing the pandemic. Your your criticisms of uh, both the scientists and the governments are quite strong. Uh, failure of leadership, let down the people that they were supposed to protect. Uh, one of the the uh, reasons you point to one of them is that the, the 2008 financial crisis and what happened in countries around the world, uh, drawing inward and uh, less money to spend and new kinds of governments elected afterwards. Would you comment about that? And I guess my secondary question is, um, how are governments supposed to prepare in a public health situation for enormous outbreaks of uh, unpredictable of, of pathogens? Yeah, I mean, I mean and, and it's very easy to um, be seen to be guilty of hindsight here. So I, I need to be careful um, about what I say. Um, I do want to put this, though, in the context of what I said earlier, that we've had 30 years of experience of a rising rate of zoonoses, these, these uh, episodes when viruses jump from animals to humans. So we, we really have known this is coming, and we can't pretend that we didn't know it was coming. Um, and the unfortunate truth is that every generation of politicians has put this problem off, um, thinking that they can get away with it and they can leave it to a succeeding generation. And we've been caught out on, the, on this particular um, occasion. Uh, so, and we've also known that we were at risk of a pandemic, but not a pandemic of this particular virus. There all of all Western countries will have run pandemic preparedness um, scenarios uh, in the belief that influenza was going to be the greatest risk um, to their populations. And in pretty much all countries, a pandemic of influenza will be absolutely at the top of a national risk register. Because influenza, we, we have waves of it every year. Um, we survive it. It can sometimes be more severe one year than another year. Um, but in, in a very severe case, we, we would know that we would be in a situation like 1918 when millions and millions of people um, are at risk of dying. So that's what we were preparing for. We were preparing for a pandemic of influenza. Um, that said, um, we didn't prepare. Uh, in the United Kingdom in 2016, they ran a pandemic preparedness exercise for influenza, and they found that we were shockingly unprepared. So the recommendation was to get prepared for a pandemic. What did we do? We did nothing. We didn't get prepared. So when this, when this pandemic hit, we did not have personal protective equipment ready. We did not have a test, trace, and isolate system ready. We did not have a National Health Service that was ready. Now, that why is that? Why is that? And this is where there are some very fundamental questions about how our societies work. And it's really going to be a test of our governments to see whether we can absorb the lesson. Because the fundamental lesson is this. 
we've built our society on the notion of efficiency. Just in time, distribution, um, very, very, very tight margins in the way we run our health service, our education service. That doesn't work in a pandemic. Instead, we need to be building our societies not on the principle of efficiency, but on the principle of resilience. And resilience means that you have to have some extra capacity in the system to be able to absorb shocks that hit the system. Now, resilience means money. It means it costs. And the question for our societies, for governments, for those who elect politicians, is are we prepared to pay for resilient societies that can absorb shocks like the one that we're currently going through? That is going to mean higher taxes, less personal freedom, and governments that are going to have to be stronger in terms of state intervention. Now, that saying all of those things, it sounds a very political statement. I'm not making this as a party political statement, but that's, that's what we needed to respond to this pandemic. We needed a health service that was a health system that was resilient, that had extra capacity for sick patients, which it didn't have. We needed a government that could intervene more in the economy, um, paying workers who were losing their jobs, supporting communities, spending a lot of government money on those communities. Are we prepared for that in the future? I can't answer that question, but it's going to be very interesting on November the 3rd in the United States because that's going to be the first major test of whether we are willing to invest or not in a different kind of society. Well, to that end, President Trump uh, perhaps gets the harshest criticism in your book, and particularly for the administration's decision to cut funding for the WHO, which they said they would divert to other international organizations. I do have a, a brief clip of President Trump talking about that decision and Dr. Tedros, the head of the WHO, in his response. Let's listen, and then we'll come back to you. Today, I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. We regret the decision of the President of the United States to order a hold in funding to the World Health Organization. WHO has been fighting the pandemic with every ounce of our soul and spirit. We will continue to do that until the end. So your book, and you, you say that his decision, the president's decision was a, to cut funding was a crime against humanity. Pretty strong stuff. Can you tell us more why you came to that conclusion? Absolutely. As I think I said earlier, a global emergency requires a global response. Um, we can't have a global health emergency and have 195 countries in the world working separately. We need to have coordination of national responses so that we learn from one another. 
the organization that's responsible for coordinating national responses, for building the knowledge that we need to prevent this pandemic getting worse is the World Health Organization. At a moment of global crisis, all countries in the world need to be supporting WHO. The US government has been a generous, and I mean this sincerely, a generous supporter of the World Health Organization ever since its inception in 1948. It's a key partner. It supports something like a fifth to a quarter of its entire budget. To withdraw money in the middle of a pandemic of such a large proportion of WHO's budget is to undercut the global response, to harm, to hurt, deliberately hurt the agency that's responsible for trying to save lives around the world. Now, a crime against humanity is a knowing act of harming a people. Withdrawing money from WHO in the middle of a pandemic is a knowing act of harming people because this will harm people. And that's why it is by definition a crime against humanity. It was an appalling action, a terrifying mistake and needs to be rectified. You know, the US government is absolutely critical to global health. We need a strong America. We need a successful America. We need America as a partner in the world. And what we have currently is an America that's been withdrawing from the world, whether it's WHO, the Paris Climate Agreement, um, or any other multilateral initiative. And this is a tremendous tragedy for our societies. And I want a strong America to rejoin the global effort to defeat this pandemic because we need you. And you clearly feel comfortable in your role as the editor of The Lancet with these strong statements about American politics. That's a question. Well, I, 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 what I'm saying is that we need a strong America as a partner in the world. And that is necessary to protect and strengthen health systems that can advance health of our citizens. If America withdraws from the world, then that damages our ability to advance the health of citizens worldwide. So my motivation comes from a concern for health. I'm a physician. That's all I'm qualified to make a comment about. But policies of the American government or the British government or the French government all have an impact on world health. So yes, it's important for health professionals, for healthcare workers around the world to speak out and hold their governments and other governments accountable when they take decisions and actions that will inevitably harm the health and well-being of people worldwide. We have three minutes left in our time with you. Uh, in the close of your book, you, you look farther down the road 
And you write that disasters can be a catalyst for significant and surprising societal and political change, that we're in the beginning of a new epoch. What were you thinking about as you wrote those words? Well, I was thinking, and, and I also write this, that this pandemic has been a moral provocation to us. And by moral provocation, what I mean is that it's, it's held a mirror up to our society. And we've seen who is most at risk in our society. Our seniors, black and Asian minority ethnic populations, key workers on the front line of public services, from healthcare to education, transport to food distribution, women who, and children who are at home, often in settings of violent domestic abuse. This is our society today. And having seen that these key workers, these key populations have been most vulnerable, we can't walk away from them now and forget that. We've seen a truth about our society who is most at risk and how inequality kills. And it's now the responsibility of all of us, surely, to say that we must do so much more to eradicate inequality and to protect those vulnerable populations and people in our midst. So, yes, it's a moral provocation that we have to act upon um, looking to the future. And I hope that we have the courage to act on what we have seen. It would be a tragedy if we turned our backs on our fellow citizens. Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet Medical Journal, thank you very much for giving an hour to C-SPAN. We appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.